0: All right, welcome to another episode of Corner, members of the service industry. And this week, we're welcoming Joshua Copel to the show. Uh, He is the host of the Full Comp podcast. He is the founder and CEO of Flow Hospitality and uh, the former managing partner of Prune Proper, which was located in downtown Los Angeles, which is a restaurant that sadly closed uh, in the early days of the pandemic. Um, I've been wanting to get him on the show for a minute because I think he and I share very similar ideas and ideals about this industry and how we can improve things moving forward. Um, uh, he's also a, uh, his podcast is awesome and he talks to some of the top people within our industry and, and, and the, the messages is what was, what was, how do we get to where we were during, you know, obviously the pandemic kind of revealed some scars that were already in our industry and how do we improve moving forward? Um, so on the podcast, we talk about how, what role technology plays in us moving forward. How do we, uh, improve a dialogue between our customers, um, and everybody else involved in, in running a restaurant and, and how we got to where we are and how do we, uh, how does it look moving forward? Um, I've, you know, I know that the episodes have been a little like far and few between because um, right now the wife and I are in the the midst of a move. Um, We are um, leaving Los Angeles and moving to Nashville. So that's exciting. But like, I don't know how frequently these episodes um, are going to be in the future. I'm going to try to record um, a few of them in in, in the weeks to come. Um, but we are leaving in April, so it, it, they might not be up. So bear with me. I am still doing this. I know that I am taking some some long uh, beats between episodes, uh, but I appreciate the support um, everyone's been showing me. And um, if I can just ask you right now before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. I, I'm trying to get 100, just a measly 100 subscribers so I can get a unique uh, URL for my, my page that helps a long way in uh, promoting. Um, Also, if you're not uh, following on Instagram or following along on uh, iTunes podcast or Spotify, please do that. Uh, Leaving a comment or a rate or review, it helps me um, uh, get the show uh, out there for a lot of people. So uh, without any further ado, let's get into service, shall we? You're listening to Corner. Memoirs of the Service Industry, a podcast set out to document the lives of those who work in service and hospitality. I'm Erica Chopo, and I'll be running the front of the house tonight. I'm a 22-year vet in the bar and restaurant scene and have worked and managed everything from Michelin star restaurants to dive bars and everything in between. I'm sitting down with members of our industry to talk about why they love doing what they do and share some stories along the way. Around every corner is a new story, a new hire, and a new experience. Josh, how are you doing, man? Uh, welcome hey, to the show. All things
1: considered, well, thank yeah. you, sir. Uh,
0: Josh Kopel, uh former uh, partner in Prune uh, property Proper in downtown Los Angeles, and uh, the, uh, what is it, owner, CEO of Flow Hospitality Solutions? What's your Yes, name? sir. Yeah. Um, and uh, the host of uh, the Full Comp Podcast. Uh, you got it. Well, hey, man, I've been trying to get you on the show for a minute. Um, we seem to have been working in the same circles in downtown Los Angeles for the past um five, six years and never really crossed paths. And I think that mm-hmm. you're um hearing your podcast and hearing some of the things that you've been talking about and and really like um carrying the banner for, I think, in the industry, or a lot of along the same lines that um the way I my my mind thinks. Uh, Absolutely. So I kind of want to get into it, man. So one of the, I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard you say that I 100% agree upon is, well, it's two things, but they they kind of go together. Um, when in the op-ed that you wrote for why prune proper clothes during the pandemic, you, you, you highlighted the fact that uh, the industry as a whole for a very long time has kind of been living this lie of we're doing amazing, right? Like everything's great. Everything's fine. But if, you know, what we found during the pandemic that a month of being closed, everything fell apart. It was on a house of cards. And a lot of that has to do with with the high margins, uh, the, the very thin margins rather that, uh, restaurants operate at. Um, we have, I can get it, we can get into it a little bit, but kind of like my big thing that I've been thinking about moving forward is, and do you think that it's a fair statement to think that, uh, Part of those high margins, one of the reasons why I think COVID kind of killed the industry is maybe it was killed a long time ago because commercial real estate was so expensive. I know, like at Clayton's, we were we when I got at Clayton's public house downtown, they went from twelve grand to twenty grand right before right. I got. And it's impossible to run a place of that size in that location at that cost. Um, do you think that played a big factor into it? I mean, everyone wants to talk about minimum wage, but I think. Commercial real estate really is a uh, like a big factor in that as well.
1: I I mean I I would say the biggest factor is optimism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? I, I think more than anything that that as a as an entrepreneur, I, I think we're all born with and gifted with an exceptional amount of op- optimism, right? <laughs> tour you are gifted with a level of optimism that borders on madness yeah uh you know my rent at Pro and proper was twenty one thousand dollars a month and we paid rent every month yeah. whether we made money or not um and, and i i signed that lease just, just like you know the lease was signed to clayton's knowing full well that i would be able to pay that because mm-hmm. people cared about what i was doing and it would matter and you know, turns out it took almost two years to achieve a reasonable level of profitability over there, and we lost a lot of money the first year as we grew the business. Right. But I didn't think in those terms because of because of the optimism that inspired me to sign what was categorically a bad lease, <laughs> um, and, and inspired me to charge the wrong price for everything, right. and, and you know, inspired me to compete with my neighbors on price. And, and and substituting price for value
0: right and i think that kind of speaks into i've heard you talk about like you know us moving forward and we'll get into that more a little later on about partnering, partnering up with a lot of uh these businesses but in my experience and a lot of my friends experience that conversation isn't in, isn't actually happening in the way that i'm I believe you think, and I think that it should be happening. A lot of, you know, these guys got to pay their rent. And I think this is a shit rolls downhill type of scenario. I think there's a bigger idea, but um, I, you know, the fact that we have been hurting for such a long time, just the fact that one month being closed, most of these places just are like, well, we're done. We're never coming back. And then yep. the idea of thinking about new revenue streams and even with all the new revenue streams that I agree upon, like it, a place like you know a former employee of mine at Faith and Flower doing pantry items and you know uh, branding you know uh, anything they make in house and, and and bottling it and selling it I think are fantastic ideas but ultimately when it comes down to you have a couple factors and really your bottom line you have the cost of operating which is the rent and and uh, you know gas and bill all, all all your bills and then labor and then cost of goods you can only affect two of them because the rent doesn't seem to be budging for a lot of people. So, um, do you think there's a way that we, like, what's the optimistic, like outlook on how that conversation for a lot of people who are listening, maybe they, how do they approach that, uh, with their, their, their building? Like, how do we have that conversation where like, this benefits everybody?
1: You negotiate. Or you don't sign the lease. I I mean, it's, you know, we're so in this industry, we are so motivated by fear, right? Fear of losing out on an opportunity. And then as soon as we get that opportunity, fear of going out of business. Yeah, And, And it's just, it's a really unfortunate position to be in because... We, we, we sign leases that we have no business in signing because we really have no idea how the market's going to react to our products and services. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, we turn around and make terrible compromises with, with ourselves and our communities to stay in business. The
0: focus being to survive, not thrive. Yeah. And I yeah, I think that's kind of speaks to the whole point. Like I remember, you know, the old adage. Fuck, maybe 10 years ago. So you open a restaurant, you're not profitable for like five years and you're losing money. And that seemed to be the norm. Moving forward, uh, you know, do you see that still being a reality? I mean, I think that a certain level of restaurants that it is, but uh, I think kind of the big question is wh- where do you see the industry going as far as independent restaurants? You see uh, the- most people taking the easy route to a, a quick service because that, business model is going to be a little bit like, uh, I guess, future-proof is the is the right, maybe the wrong word, but like, you know, going to quick service and abandoning the, the, the dine-in uh, ups, upscale dine-in uh, model, or do you still see that like the fine dining will always be fine dining. Then the step below it, I think is the, is the category I think might be hurt the most. Or do you think that, you know, there's still hope for the industry to, kind of look the same in five years as it did five years ago?
1: I mean, I hope it never looks the same. Okay. And and I think that there's hope in all tiers of dining. I, I think so much of it is just going to come down to the fundamentals. Um, what I can tell you is that there's been a big lie that's been passed down through the generations. And that lie is, is that... The restaurant industry is different than every other industry out there, and you know we we can't we can't play by the same rules as everyone else. And mm-hmm. overtime is a necessity, and you have to work a hundred hours a week, and you have to work in your business, you can't work on your business, and on and on and on. We all we all grew up, yeah, um, with these ideologies being passed down through the generations. And I got to tell you, man, I spent ten months talking to the most brilliant minds in our industry, and they all run their businesses like businesses. Yeah period, across the board. So uh, have I talked to people that have been hugely successful in all tiers of dining? Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Do they all share common qualities? Is there a a formula for success? There absolutely is. Um, And it starts with, one, figuring out your fundamentals. Uh, you know, I interviewed uh, Susan Sarich from Susie Cakes okay. for the podcast. And she talked about how before she opened her location in Brentwood, she went to the busiest like dessert place, cupcakery, in, in, in a comparable area. She sat in the parking lot for a week and watched how many cars parked, how many people walked in and how much shit they walked out with. Yeah. And she did it because she wanted to know on average, how much the busiest place was making, because that would determine how much she could afford in rent and how many of us have done that. I mean, I'm not going to raise my hand. No, I
0: I, I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of neighborhood comparison shopping, but I don't, I don't know many people who I think gone to that level of, you know, of research and, and trying to figure it out. And I think that's a smart, smart play. And I agree with you. I don't think the restaurant industry should, should be the same. I know that, um, I've always kind of had in downtown, I've always kind of maintained a certain level of, of the places I worked at. Um, and then, uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, open up and, 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 uh, uh, bartend at Shibumi when they were number one. And I kind of mm-hmm. got that, that was my first forte into like that really high level of, of dining experience. Uh, and then I took um, a couple other management jobs. and I ended up at faith and flower, which was, is a machine, or was a machine of a restaurant, right. You know, yeah, they're, they're, uh, like a 10 point something million dollar restaurant. Um, and I remember that workload and how much that dragged me, like beat me up. Like I was probably the worst I've ever been in a mental state. Um, the worst my relationship with my wife had ever been because of the stress and i not being able to live home. I had a contentious relationship with the chef where like you walk in knowing you're going to get fucking yelled at every day and how that affects. And then pulling a 50, 60 hour work week, uh, if not longer than some weeks and just realizing that, man, I don't, this isn't what I love about this industry, but you look around and that, that was, that's the norm. How do we get past that moving forward without it drastically? Like my, yes, you can pay people more, but then that cost kind of gets put on to the customer. And I agree that we should kind of bump up costs as a whole, but where's that balance? Do you think?
1: I don't think you work to achieve balance. I, I think that it, and I know it's always going to come back to money and I think it should come back to money. I think, Everything you're describing is fixed with pricing. Yeah. I think if you charge enough money that you can offer subsidized healthcare to your team, that you can have them work uh, a livable schedule for a living wage, Mm -hmm. um, you you eliminate gratuity by by offsetting, you know, increasing your prices. And I I think you just run it like a business. I think the chef is less likely to yell if the chef's working 40 hours a week too. Yeah. I, I, I think that- if you create a more hospitable environment for yourself by making sure that you don't, ha- it's not about having enough money to pay your rent. Mm-hmm. Because there were several months that I had enough money to pay my rent, yeah. but I didn't have enough money to pay my mortgage. Yeah. So, what does that do to me as an owner, an yeah. operator, a leader? Yeah. Um, it, it's so disheartening. And, and it, it, I think it comes down to one, figuring out how much you need to charge to be able to give your people uh, what they need, which includes a 401k, which includes, you know, five days. I mean, we, we live in an industry where like having two days off in a row is a privilege.
0: Yeah. You work so- your way up to that. And it's, it's bananas. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think, you know, the the joke of anyone in the services is always was, I don't understand. I don't know what weekends are. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we don't live a nine to five, you know, quote unquote square life. Um, you know, a lot of us are working the nights and um, and yeah, I, I know that like I've been fortunate to kind of always kind of get those two days also from in a row and they always felt like a norm. And when you don't get them, it's like all of a sudden you're like, what is wrong with the world? And and I've been so blind and so lucky for so long. Um but I I one of my issues kind of always within the industry is that no, the best way I'll put it this way, um, you know, you look at the film industry and that was like a, it was a kind of an apprenticeship when you're in the camera department. You were like a second assistant camera guy, like a film loader. And then you went up to assistant camera and then this camera operator who's been doing this for 30, 40 years, holding a 150 pound camera on their shoulder. When the director yells cut, they're just going to blindly throw it over the shoulder. And if the assistant camera guy wasn't there to catch it, it's his ass. And there was this do what I fucking tell you to do, be where I fucking tell you to be. And there was this kind of, they got beaten down into it, but that was the way they learned. And so when they became a camera app, they treated their AC the same way and so forth and so forth. And I think in the kitchen specifically, and in restaurants specifically, you had kind of that same mentality of a drill sergeant passed down from the top chefs in the world, you know, year over year over year. But now we kind of get to a certain and I'm not talking about like, being a snowflake and soft and we should treat everyone with respect and kindness. And I'm a very curt guy. When I work, I don't need to please and thank you. You. It's just, this is the job. But I also believe that we are working off of like a hundred plus year way of doing things. And I don't think it works anymore with an industry as a whole. I think at a certain level of dining, it, it still works because they are the best of the best and and perfection is key. But like, you have to have an honest conversation with yourself. Is that what we are? Can we get there? But can we do it in a way where like, I'm not burning out my kitchen staff because I'm throwing pots and pans at them and then have to find somebody else and find somebody else. Cause you can't pay them what you should pay them. You have to be competitive with everybody else. And then, you know, then again, the bottom lines are down. So I'm, I'm a little bit rambling, but I just kind of like moving forward, I understand we, we got to pay people, maybe eliminate some positions. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you, like, where do you see the customer experience kind of going forward? Like, I know when I took over Clayton's, I was trying to eliminate servers. We're a pub. You don't need servers to wait at the table. They can go to the bar and order. And it's getting a little pushback from the guests. But where do you see kind of moving forward in the the broad range of restaurants when it comes to traditional norms and traditional jobs? Do you think servers as a whole kind of start to get phased out uh, in lieu of technology?
1: I think high level, you're looking at a reinterpretation of what hospitality means, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when you look at the millennials, because they just don't value the same things that the boomers valued or the Gen Xers. Or I think there's a Gen Z in there somewhere as well. (laughs) Um, But I here's what I see. I, I see that, that hospitality used to be having someone wait on you hand and foot. Mm-hmm. And with millennials, they, they see the value in optimization and they see the value in expediency. How do I envision the, the dining room at Pru and Proper in 2022? Uh, I see that instead of having five servers in a section, you have one captain in a section and that captain's only job. They don't clean. They don't cook. They don't run food. Mm -hmm. All they do is watch the tables and make sure that everyone has everything they need, answer any questions they have and every table orders through a tablet and they'll get their food and drinks faster. And if they have a question, there's someone there to facilitate the experience. I would invest way more in the reception area of my restaurant to make sure that, that people felt welcome. And we explain the concept and they were walked to their tables yep. in a very hospitable way. And I think that can happen in a lower tier dining establishment as well, yep. that you really work to welcome them in. You really work to explain the rules of engagement and then you make sure that there are no snafus along the way. I think that works in all tiers.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I, I, when I was at Clayton's before the lockdown, I was trying to transition us into a POS called Union. Uh, they formerly had an app called Tabbed Out, which was a, you could order from your phone and it would play with micros really well. But they eventually d- developed their own POS system. And when since I was kind of eliminating servers anyways before then, and mainly was doing that for two reasons, one, building a different culture within that in that bar, and two, because we needed to eliminate some labor costs um, to offset some, some of the problems we had there. Um, so I was going into it, then the pandemic happened, then I was like, well, not only can you order from your phone from this app, you can order from your couch, and then come pick it up, it became right. like our own private thing. Unfortunately, we never got to implement it because... Of, of some technical issues um, during the pandemic, our IT guy disappeared, so we could never get them to talk to each other. Um, but yeah, I saw that as the future, kind of like you don't, there's certain places where you don't need it. Um, fine dining, I think that friction point's gonna be a little tougher for some, some customers because they are so used to that level of service. But I agree with the captain thing, because essentially you're turning a captain into that floor manager, they roam the floor, they make sure touch tables, and everyone's doing a good job. And as long as you have a, a, a good team of food runners and bussers, you you just need to observe and let people have a good time. Um, I'm all for that. I think that's the fact that it's taken so long is is a weird holding on to the old concept of, you know, having servants in your house serving you all the time. So um, sure. Seth Godin says that price
1: is a story. And I, I would argue that that service is a story as well mm-hmm. and, and that you have the opportunity to explain to people uh, not just how it's going to work but why it works the way it does yep. you know we we spare no expense to make sure that you have the highest quality food and beverage at this location everything is done from scratch and we we kill ourselves to get it done and in yep. exchange we're able to offer it at a very reasonable price if you choose to order through this tablet yeah i think um yeah i
0: people kind of don't also, care they, they they don't they,
1: they, they, yeah. they, they really don't like no. it's it, it, again it always comes back to fear and the fear that i experienced you know every every waking moment mm-hmm. uh that, that that i was in an ownership or operational position within the industry which is we were just afraid to have the conversation yeah you know and and also you know we were afraid that we were going to get swallowed up by the competition in this saturated market
0: yeah and i think that's where a lot of the old guard of mentality in, in like owners and, and managers and, and, and chefs where it comes from, because that fear of like, we need to make X amount of dollars in order to make payroll. And then they drive out of fear. They motivate out of fear breeds toxicity in a restaurant, which there's, you know, a long documented history of toxicity in the restaurant scene. And I think that's all motivated from the fact that margins are so thin. Nobody's, Actually, willing to work together. Vendors are out to get the best price for their products. You know, we're trying to get it for the cheapest, so then we sacrifice quality. Then the guests aren't. I mean, it's all like I said. Shit rolls downhill. Industry, um, and I think everyone would be better off if we just admitted that what worked 100 for the past hundred years isn't going to work moving forward. We have to kind of. Well, but reinvent. you can see
1: you can see examples of what's working, and and it is so different from the way, the way I did business. And and it's, you look at a place like Bodega Louie as a great great example, a 10 plus million dollar restaurant. I think it's like 15, 20 million dollars. You know, once you incorporate their catering and their retail and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But they opened as a $3 million restaurant. And then the the following year they had 10 million and they were off to the races. And when Bodega Louie opened in downtown Los Angeles, I mean, it was, if it, if it was a bad area today, I don't even know how you would describe it back okay. then. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the demand was there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that they specialized in marketing or anything like that, but they spent the better part of a year analyzing the data in the area. Yeah. What should we do? What is the best way? way to create product market fit because mm-hmm. it, it's it's a conversation that we don't really have as much as we should as an industry, but product market fit matters a whole lot more than what you want to do for a living. If you love Italian food and you want to open an Italian restaurant, then you need to choose an area that needs an Italian restaurant, yeah. not necessarily the area you live in or where you would prefer to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to choose by location, you've got to look at your market and say, this is what's going to work in this area. And they did a master Job of looking at how many office buildings there were in the area and how many people were in those office buildings. And yeah. you know, where were those guys eating? And, and they they created they they created a concept that met existing demand. Yeah. One of the big aha moments out of the last 10 months is that nobody's creating demand. Yeah. It is impossible to create demand. I cannot make you want something you do not intrinsically want. Yeah. The places that are busy are busier out the gate. And it's because they have found out that people need something, and they are supplying that need. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up in a situation like I have so many times in my professional career, where you're investing a ton of money trying to create demand when there's there's really no way to do it. Yeah. The the whole point of marketing, the whole point of advertising, is not to create demand; it's to create awareness. Yeah, I mean,
0: people as as you know, as the lockdown and the reopenings and the shutdowns and the reopenings have shown, is people want to go out. The, you know and even more so now so how do you how do you like there's a couple bars downtown that i think are doing it really well but they also have the luxury of having a lot of space outdoors that not everyone does other bars have gone to the how do i support the community through uh donation boxes and, and free dinners that keeps awareness going like i think one of the things i was really trying to do with clayton's um if we had the opportunity was just kind of keeping us in people's minds by, um, you know, viral videos. I hate using that word, but making content, uh, trying to get people to always think when, Oh, I want fish and chips. I know Clayton's. And so when they get reopened, I've, I know I can get, you know, what I want out of it. I think internet has always been a huge factor, but now more so you need to be able to be, a media company as much as a restaurant and really like being controlling your story, controlling your narrative, having a social team that you either pay out or in-house is hugely important. And even more so now, because, you know, when it kind of starts to open back up, you're going to see this big gold rush of restaurants again. And it's going to be a how do you stand out amongst the crowd in that way? Um, so. That kind of dovetails into how do you think technology's role We kind of touched on tablet ordering, eliminating some staff members through technology, but where do you see technology really leading the industry in the next couple of years?
1: I I think that it's going to come down to media. I I think media is going to be critical. The the people that you've seen thrive, really thrive during the pandemic are the people that had direct access to their customers, the people that had based their business off third-party marketplaces and all that, that had no direct contact with their customer, that they did not know who they were or how to get in touch with them. The people with no social media presence, they, they their business dwindled. Because again, those were never really their customers to begin with. Yeah. The people that owned their customers, the people that had email addresses, cell phone numbers, huge followings on social media. These are the people that did well because they were able to continue to offer value. They were able to continue staying front of mind. And they were able to communicate directly with their customers and say, hey, if you want us to stay in business, you need to buy gift cards. Yeah. I need you to buy this par-cooked meal. Yep. I need you to do these things so that we can stay in business. And we've seen communities rally around those people because they had that direct access.
0: Yeah, I think I would love a couple things to stay in in restaurants. I don't think it's this much harder to execute it. I think par-cooked meals like uh should always be part of an arsenal in a restaurant moving forward. Uh pantry items, uh branded like sauces, you know, uh, secret herbs and spices, whatever you have, you those pantry items should always moving forward be part of any um let's say elevated restaurant like Fast casual still ha- should have some, but definitely when you get into the higher end that needs to be part of your business model moving forward. I think to go alcohol depends on if the ABC plays nice because they are extend they didn't there isn't a new permit for it. they're just kind of saying go be with God um, and that could be taken away like that and I, that's a big fear that I know a lot of my friends in the industry have just it's a big part of how they can stay afloat uh, if they don't have the space and so. I'm afraid that might get taken away because of politics, but I all that moving forward, 100%. Uh, Data is key too. One of the things that I implemented was you know, a uh, Wi-Fi gateway where you have to and give me your information before you can use Wi-Fi because then I have your email, your number. I can now directly market to you. I think so many people don't think of those little things because if you don't have a mailing list, if you don't have just like a way to let people know what's going on. Um, how are they ever going to know, right? You know, that's- Well, some...
1: marketing marketing is about more than sales, right? Marketing is about providing value. It, it's, you know, look looking at your at your analytics for the month and saying, you know, this, this seasonal pie has been the best-selling seasonal pie that we've ever done. Yep. And then in your newsletter the following month, you say, hey, obviously the key lime pie was a huge hit. Here's the recipe so you can make it at home. Yeah. Nobody's going to make it at home but uh, Uh, it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's more about
0: offering that value than it is in people actually trying to recreate your recipe. I I, I was right when the lockdown happened, I was, I was trying to get my, my owner to do a video on how to make fish and chips at home. Um, And he was like, well, we work so hard on the recipe and I respect that. And like, look, you don't have to give them the recipe like, or do and say, it's not. And we held something back. Like, but nobody's going to make it as good as we make it. Uh, no home cook is going to ever duplicate it perfectly. And and when they realize it's such a pain in the ass to make, they're going to come and eat it anyways. But you've given them value. I think the, the best advice I, I kind of heard was from uh, Gary V once talked about if you're a handyman in a neighborhood, give people information on how to do simple repairs around their house because then they'll trust you when you give them a price on a big job and know that you're not going to rip them off like how to install a dimmer switch so you don't have to call me out for 200 bucks a day to install a dimmer switch you know i think that's smart you give people something for free like some value that um lets them in a little bit and and then you have somebody for life at the end people Uh, ask
1: me all the time they say they say you know what should i post on social media and and the best advice you can give is to say document document your professional life let people see the effort that goes into creating these effortless experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, w- when we when we started the conversation, we were talking about how you know they, there was no transparency in the industry, and it's because that's been bred out of us. Because yeah. the the goal is ultimately that people feel like it is that this easy, flawless effortless experience on the customer side. And then that also translates into our professional life where we make everyone else think that we're making a ton of money and it's so easy to do this. Um, but in documenting what we do, I think it creates more value for the effort that goes into it.
0: Yeah. I think, I think one of my mission statements in my, in my one sheet for this was kind of the behind the scenes on what goes into that, you know five star dining experience and and maybe give you some insight on why your entree took 30 minutes to come out because it's so easy for people to go this was great but the moment that one thing slows down people you know you know the karens of the world go go nuts but like it it's important to as a manager i've always thrived on being open and honest with the customer and even more so open and honest with the staff especially if there's issues with um you know, making ends meet or, or making sure people have the shifts they need and why, and why I'm having to, you know, being, I've never felt the need of having to hold back anything because all you're going to do is, 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 um, build a, a divide between you and the customer or you and, and your employees. And, um, and that was kind of the goal of the show is I want people to see what it takes. It's not as simple as just like make food, put it on the table, that there's so much work that goes into what we do and, Um, I kind of agree. I think if more people knew that they'd have a better understanding of why prices go up and, and and why maybe service changes, because I think a lot of people are unaware and they're going to, they're going to fight it. Uh, but eventually they'll catch on because the new norm takes over.
1: There's no empathy without understanding. It's the reason that there are so many Karens in the restaurant industry is because we created Karen. Yep. Because we, we empowered people to see us as, as professional servants. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though we get our greatest joy from serving other people, um, we should still be seen as, as human beings. Yeah. And sometimes people need to know how the sausage is made in order to appreciate the, the, the quality of that sausage, the taste of that sausage, and the effort that went in to that experience that they're enjoying. I, I so vividly remember this moment. Where uh, a large party had sat down and, you know, we tell everyone when they make reservations that, you know, you can split a bill a maximum of four ways on Mm cards. And uh, the the gentleman that had hosted the party uh, wanted to talk to a manager. So I I gladly walked over and he goes, I want to split it. I want everyone to be able to split and there are 10 of us here. So we want to be able to split it 10 ways. And I I said, we just can't do that, man. And he goes, well, no, you can, you won't. I was like, you're right. I won't because we pay an associated fee with every single credit card transaction we do. And like, it's just, that would just be exorbitant to absorb that cost. Um, And we were super clear with you when you made the reservation and it states it on the menu as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he goes, man, I don't care. Like it's not... (laughs) It's not about that. Like, I don't want to know why you do business. I just came here to have a good time. I'm yeah. not really worried about your business plan. Yeah. And that's when I realized that that's on me, right? Because I did a poor job of presenting myself as a professional that's running an operation. I presented myself as a servant that yeah. solely exists to serve this other person. And yeah. I think that... We need to inject more of our humanity into the experience as well, because that'll breed empathy and understanding.
0: Yeah. I mean, just the simple fact that most people don't understand that somebody has to ring those 10 cards in. And if they're back at that POS, they're not on the floor helping anybody else, even if it falls onto us. Because I've said, go back on the floor. I'll take care of it when there's been some technical issue with the POS. But then I'm not on the floor addressing another issue that some other guest is having now at my, now this guy is the only important person in the whole restaurant. Um, but I agree. I think that mentality I've talked about it a lot. Server comes from servant. The hospitality industry comes from, you know, dignitaries having servants and having people over, you know, serve from the right, clear from the left, or I'm dyslexic. And sometimes I get those backwards. Um, that all comes from that mentality of being a, a servant. And I think, That's where that comes from. Then you tap in uh, social commentary, social reviews, and everyone thinking they're now a critic. And then you embolden them for so long and in a lot of places bent to them. So then that breeds entitlement and then so forth and so forth. Now we realize once everything shut down, how much of the economy that makes up of people who work in it, how many jobs have been lost and may never come back, um, I'm hoping moving forward, we start to see, you know, there are always be people who are going to complain. They're going to complain about masks. They're going to complain about social distancing, yada, yada, yada. But I think hopefully an eye has been opened that this is a big part of our economy. These are real jobs. These people are making real money uh, regardless of how little they're actually getting out of life, quality of life. But they're, that's, I think the rub, you have somebody who's making six figures serving, but still doesn't have health insurance provided to them, adequate health insurance provided from the establishment, still struggles to get by because the city is so expensive. Um, There's a lot of economic problems that go into restaurants, but hopefully people understand that us when we move forward, that we are happy that you're here, but the time has changed. I don't need you to be here to be complaining because I'm, I'm now caring more about my employees than I care about your overall customer experience. I want you to have a great time. I'm here for you but not to the detriment of the people who I'm employing because they desperately need this as opposed to you desperately needing to come, you know, dine in. I think kind of the uh, tables have turned slightly.
1: Lisa I would agree. I would say that they, broadly there's a cultural shift in, in the way that we treat ourselves and the way we treat each other and the way, our, you know, we treat our guests and how they're allowed to to treat us. Um, and I, I think that, that that's a natural evolution that, that that has occurred over time and is now – I, I think with the advent of social media, with with the transparency that it's created, with, with all of the harsh truths that have come out yep. due to the Me Too movement, the pandemic, and, and everything in between, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think that we, we really clearly see um, ourselves as an industry and the changes that need to be made, and our patrons will, I am confident, fall in line. Yeah.
0: Um, so let's talk a little bit, if you want to, about... Uh, um, flow hospitality it's you, sure. you know, um, if I remember you correctly is this the um, the reception service that you that you started
1: yep so I I've got a I've got a bunch of different tech companies that yeah. I, I am either a part of or that I started the idea being that you know there are foundational issues within this industry they, they really need to be solved. And one yeah. of the questions that I started asking myself uh, a couple of years before the pandemic and everybody started asking after the pandemic is, what do I need to bring in-house and what do I need to delegate? Yeah. Now, the ownership of that customer relationship is something that we desperately need to bring in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things like the telephone that, that are bastions of the past and can easily be delegated. Yeah. Um there are also more efficient models. You know, Flow started out as a virtual reservation and service for fine dining restaurants where we would answer the phones while your restaurant was closed during the day. Yeah, and it's evolved brilliant. in Thanks, man. Yeah. Um I was scratching my own itch. <laughs> yeah, that's all it was. I was solving a problem that that I saw out there. Um and and it it worked incredibly well and it evolved over time. When the pandemic hit, we saw that multiple tiers of dining were struggling with an influx of calls and yeah. So we, we developed uh, online chat and we developed uh, text message capabilities so that fewer people called, everyone was able to get directly in touch with us. You had a mm-hmm. dedicated person and people could reach us in, in whatever communication method they felt mo- most comfortable with. If they were yeah. on your website, they could chat with us. If they wanted to text your number. They could text your number.
0: Yeah. and I, Go ahead. No, I was saying, I, I think that like, Automated chat on websites has become more the norm, and being able to like ask a question without clicking five links to FAQ that's usually hidden and buried under the about us or something, I think is tremendously a time saver, at least from me being a consumer. From the restaurants, I agree with you. If you're a dinner-only restaurant, you're wasting money having somebody sit in an office for six hours answering phones. And I, that's when I, when I heard you on another podcast talk about it, it was like, that was a light bulb moment where I kicked myself for not thinking about it because it's true. You just solved a problem that everyone knew was a problem, but nobody admitted was a problem. And I think that's, that's why I wanted to talk about it. I just think it was one of those smart moments and kind of can really change the way a lot of smaller businesses can operate and operate efficiently.
1: Well, it's, you know, in the restaurant industry, you struggle with all the things that you can't have because you don't make enough money. Yeah. And and I just wanted to to figure out a way to provide an infrastructural solution that worked for me and my friends in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it started with flow. And then when the pandemic hit, uh, it really came to light what third party delivery is. And Lord knows it, it's been a curse and a saving grace simultaneously yep. for so many of us. Um, but what it is, is not what it presents to be yeah. And a third party delivery presents itself as an infrastructural solution to a foundational problem. You don't have the, the, the infrastructure, either software or staffing to deliver your own food. We'll do it for you, Yeah. but that's not really what it is. What it re- really is, is another marketplace, yeah. like all of the other marketplaces that are charging you a premium for access to your own customers. Yeah. I don't think 30% is an excessive commission for a brand new customer. Yeah. But if you've got to pay that 30%, every single time that customer orders from you, there's no way you're going to survive. No. 15% is too much.
0: Yeah. I, the first thing I did when I took over Clayton's was got rid of, got rid of them. Cause I, I looked at the the pMix and how much we were selling through them. And I go, well, this was before alcohol could be to go. And I go, well, yeah, they bought a burger for, you know, 12 bucks, but I missed out on the $7 beer, beer sale because they lived upstairs and they were too lazy to come down. Like, you know, being downtown, you want all those people coming. Now you need those as- aspects, but yeah, like when, if you but can there's get a, a
1: better solution. Yeah.
0: If you have a hundred orders and you're losing 30% on all of them, you know, it's a
1: disaster, yeah. but, but there is a way I I discovered to, to use them for what they're good for and take care of it on your own. I created a company called in Okay. And what we do is we provide the infrastructural solution, period. Awesome. We yeah. provide the, the software that makes delivery as easy as third party, but you're managing it. We're managing it on the back end for you. So people order through your website and either your team delivers it or you can get access to our, our on-demand fleet of drivers um, and we'll dispatch and deploy them for you. Yeah. And, it's it's $1 per delivery plus if you use our on demand people it's uh it's $6 per delivery yeah and what we have seen is the game changes completely mm-hmm. one of the big issues with third party delivery is, is that they're not just charging you they're charging your customer yeah so because they're charging your customer you don't have the ability to recoup that money through a transactional fee yeah um and in in us just supplying the uh the the infrastructural solution you can pass that cost onto the customer, and they're already used to paying it. Yeah, they get their food faster and cheaper. Yeah. And at the end of the day, everybody wins. It's not about getting off of third party delivery. Yeah. It's just using them for new business, and then bringing that returning business in house.
0: Yeah, I, I just from a manager operational stand standpoint, dealing with the third party apps when something was eighty sixth seems very like oh you just flip a button okay but like uber eats and postmates are not designed the same way so they're not as easy to do that stuff and then if something happened to go 86 after the order went in now having to call there's no direct you you are completely gatekeeped from your customer 100 uh, percent and it's the most you aren't frustra- even able to contact your customer directly yeah it's the most frustrating experience especially if it's you know, a Friday night and you're already in the weeds and now you have to deal with this, you know, essentially bullshit. Um, Yes. It's been a saving grace for a lot of people, but you're seeing that big trend of just call and come pick up or just, you know, like I said, you make. Takeout uh, has been great. Curbside has been great. Yeah. I think that's why I was so happy with that, that, you know, union POS because they had, they rebranded and brought back from the dead. They're tabbed out infrastructure. They built an app where you can order from the phone, which I think is great. Kind of what we're talking about in the dine-in experience. But if you're like want pickup too, it works the same way. Uh, and also it was a less crowded marketplace when we were going, there was only a handful of places on it. So then we can market it as our own in-house app because mm-hmm. we're not getting, there isn't a fee to use it It's part of our already put in place POS fee. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't any extra add on for it. Um, and that was, a, they were, a great company. I was really ashamed that we couldn't actually do business together. Um, but I remember that being an important thing for me is that try and keep as much in-house as possible, especially when those early days of us trying to reopen, we were making like $500, $600 a day. Like right. it just, you know, you weren't getting anywhere near the traffic that you were doing. So you needed that extra five, six, seven hundred $700 from a delivery service. But then that 30% on that, it's just, I just, that's the part that kills me. And I'm, I'm all for as much of going in-house. So I think that's another great avenue to go to. Thanks, man. Yeah,
1: Um, I I just, I think that there are a lot of big conversations to have. There are a lot of big problems to solve. And most of the tech companies out there today are trying to solve really small, easy problems because it's low hanging fruit. And, And what I've always found most interesting is that all of, all of these predatory tech companies, they, they, they prey on a company that doesn't really have the margins to afford using whatever these services are. And so many of these services are focused on convenience for the operator yeah. when, you know, the real convenience comes in either saving money
0: or making money. Yeah. I mean... You know, somebody comes and gets a $12 burger, 30% on one item is a big chunk of that one item, Sure. you know, and then your profit margin on that is gone. Like you, you know, it's all went, you might be operating on a 30% profit margin on some things as you're trying to give somebody quality for a value. And then look at the fine
1: dining concepts that pivoted where the, the average order price is $150. Yeah. Even, even 15% on
0: that is a huge amount of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's nuts. Right. Cause I mean like, and that's, that's why like you started seeing some other companies like talk started to come out where they were, it was more towards pickup, but they were like, Hey, let's pivot our infrastructure into this uh, toast. The POS system started pivoting their infrastructure into it. Um, and I think that was a smart play is like, let's keep as much in-house. Look, you're already paying us for POS. We already take a, you know, a service fee and then we're not going to charge you per item. It's, just, you know, we're just expanding our services. Um, but well, yeah, it's also I,
1: important to remember that, that concepts like toast and, and it's brilliant that they structured it the way they did. When you order through third-party delivery, toast doesn't make any money. Yeah, because they don't make any money off that transaction fee. So, yeah. in bringing it back in house and facilitating that third-party transaction through their platform, they're actually able to take those uh, those credit card fees that they survive off of.
0: Yeah. Um. So part of the show that I've kind of, you know, I get through conversation, but I, I've been trying to like kind of spearhead it a little bit more uh, with guests. Is I I want to, you know. We talk about the pandemic and it can get really on a on a down note but I like to kind of get the guests to talk a little bit more about like you know some great stories that they had from it like Prune proper you guys were around for six years right Yeah Yep um so talk a little bit about that journey I know you've been very open and honest about like you know the stumbles at the beginning um, and then finding footing in 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 a downtown space, kind of. We all went. We all. I was downtown throughout that whole period, and we had expectations of what downtown was going to be, and then the reality of what it is. Um, you know, any fond memories looking back of of the time in downtown at Pruin and Proper that you care to share?
1: Oh my God, it was an amazing experience. It, it truly was. You know, when when we acquired the property, when we leased it. I, I turned to my business partner and I said, this will be the center of the city. Yeah, And there was nothing around us. There was no hotel behind us. There was no okay. coffee shop. There was no shoe store. There was there was just us. Mm-hmm. But I knew it. And I knew it because in, in the only period I've spent outside this industry, I spent three years uh, owning and operating a clothing line. Okay. And my office was in the new mart, which is right across the street from where Peru and Proper was. Right. And at the time... The the and Proper Space was owned by a family. They lived on the second floor, and the restaurant was called Angelique. Mm-hmm. And I loved the building. Right. I'm from Southern Louisiana. I grew up surrounded by buildings like that. The fact yep. that it was flat iron, there was just the, this magical nature to the building. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when the parish closed, I, I jumped on the opportunity to acquire it. At the time, we owned 504 in Hollywood, and we were doing really well there. And uh, and, and so you know, the the second location you open is either going to be a huge success or it's going to drag down the first one. And then you have nothing. (laughs) So I turned to my business partner and I was like, let's just throw the kitchen sink at it. Right. Let's do, let's do it right. Let's do it right from the beginning and let's make sure it's a truly spectacular place. And we did. And, and I had the build-out of my dreams and the infrastructure of my dreams. And the first year was hard. The first year was hard because I was trying to be an owner and not an operator. And I had right. hired a GM and an executive chef, both who were incredibly well-meaning, but just a bad fit for what I was trying to right. achieve. And, uh, and, and so I took over as GM after the first year. I brought in a new executive chef, uh, a young, hardworking upstart named Sammy Mansoor, incredibly talented guy. And we dug in and it was 80 to 100 hour work weeks and we were there constantly and I had, I would tell you I had 30 days worth of cash in the bank but I probably had three days worth of cash in the bank and I went back to all my vendors and I was like, we're just gonna make a go of it and we're gonna see what happens. And what happened next was absolutely incredible. The community came out to support us. They understood what we were trying to do and they wanted to be active participants. I can't tell you how many people I would walk up to on a Tuesday night and be like, Oh my God, you were just in here on Saturday. What are you doing back? And they're like, well, you know, we want to make sure you stay in business. Yeah. And it, it it was so inspiring to see them support us in the way that they did. The people of
0: uh, sorry to interrupt. I just, to me that's the best part of what downtown was in those early days was a real sense of community and people gave a shit. They If they liked you, they wanted you to be there and yeah.
1: Well, the people of downtown LA at that time, and I'm sure it's still true to a certain degree today, but they were so proud to be downtowners yep. because mm-hmm. they weren't moving into high rise luxury apartments that, that had dormant. They were moving into studios yep. with unfinished walls and just making it work for 10 years because they were trying to invest in their community. And when yep. I turned to my business partner and we were going to drop a couple of million into something. We wanted to invest in that, in those people, in that community, yep. and give them something that 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 they would enjoy. That's why when we saw the failure of the parish, we said, you know, maybe fine dining isn't the only option. Maybe if we have a bar room on the first floor mm-hmm. and a fine dining restaurant on the second floor, we'll be able to serve the needs of the entire community. Yeah, and
0: it, it really seemed to resonate. I, I have uh, I I always wanted to ask, just. Prune proper, but since I got you and since you, that is your place. I remember Parrish having, they, I remember they like when Parish was around, they kind of would, anyone who would ask, they would show, they, they built out like this big freezer just for ice. Did they yep. keep, did they keep that? Did you guys still have that? Just no, I a, ripped that uh, out. Okay. I ripped
1: out all of the place so to space. All of the refrigeration <laughs> for the entire restaurant was on the second floor. Yeah which is crazy because yeah. everything is being produced on the first floor. So we moved everything down and installed dumb waiters. Yeah. I just
0: remember just like, like for me from, you know, bartender, bar manager, AGM, sure. GM, the, the the that transition for me, just having a dedicated, like I'd kill in almost every single bar or restaurant I worked in to have a dedicated ice refrigerator for the high quality, you know, ice. So the fact that they had one, I thought was one kind of a, great for the bartender, but also kind of a waste of operating capital because it has a singular use. And I think anything that's a singular use in any business or life is kind of you, you don't get the best value out for of it. For
1: sure. We were also able to, because of that, because of we removed it and pulled the wall back, we were able to create a, a prep station for the bar. Right. Uh, it was an entirely scratch program. I mean, we literally made everything in house. We were making our own liqueurs mm-hmm. and they had ample space to get that done because we pulled that out. So we took away something, but we were able to give something back
0: that we thought had more value. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> um, yeah, I, Moved downtown and, uh, I was downtown in 09, had to go back home to DC for a while, came back in 11, uh, and lived in the arts district. So right through that big boom. Um, and, and, you know, it was funny. I heard you on another podcast recently and you were talking about, um, not knowing happy hour was like the thing that you needed to focus on. Um, and, and it reminded me of when I was, uh, at artisan house, you know, I, I, I've worked in pretty much all capacities at Arson House and was the AGM there before I left. And I remember why it stands out when you talked about not knowing happy hour was a thing. And that conversation dovetailed into understanding what your customer wants versus what you set out to do. And it just reminds me of the story of like being at a place like Arson House where the owner's Loved West Side restaurants. I don't. I, mm-hmm. I I I lost track of the amount of times Jones on Third got mentioned in in, in manager meetings. Um, but we weren't that. Also, they opened up as a fine dining French restaurant, and that had to pivot. And there was a friction between staff, management, and ownership about like this is what the neighbor na- the neighborhood's blue collar man. When you opened, there wasn't a restaurant row, and there wasn't the bank district with all the fine dining restaurants. You sure. could have been whatever you want. The neighborhood built around you became very blue-collar working class because the early people downtown were, like you said, we were just happy to be downtown. We didn't care how close we were to Skid Row. There was an artist community. It was a big hospitality community because everyone who worked in those restaurants and bars tend to live downtown as well. So we were like all for community and the community said, we want this to be something else. And then they refused year over year and tried and wasted money on consultants and what are we doing wrong? And none of the consultants told them what they were doing wrong. Cause they just collected their fees and said what they wanted to hear. Um, but that importance of listening to an audience, especially now, like even more so, like get your ego out of the way, whatever you thought you were doing, either remarket it and retell them like, and, and show them a better way. Like, this is why this is great. And you should, this is why you should come to us present that value or listen to what they want and try to find the best way in a common ground. Um, and I think that was great about those early days of downtown was communities really like major, you, you know? Absolutely. The, the
1: investment that we made in the community paid us back tenfold in the investment that the community made in
0: us. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have an optimistic outlook on the industry um, just because I, I, I love innovation. I think there's a, a the, for us to, to change and move forward and, and it's kind of becomes like a wild West. We get to write our own rules. Um, I think with, you know, voices like you in the industry and especially being able to tap into some of those more established people that you talk to, hopefully we can, that stuff can start to resonate throughout the country. Um, but yeah, man, let's, I, I I can't thank you enough for coming on. I, I think that your insight, um, has been kind of echoing what it's been in my head, but you're a way more eloquent person and also a way more uh, um, established person within the industry to talk about it. So I, I at least thank you for uh, proving to me that I'm not a crazy person and that I actually uh, have a good head for this, but, um, but yeah, uh, any final notes on maybe where people can, can um, uh, follow, you know, all the new stuff that you're coming out with and, 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 and let's plug a full comp. What do you got going on with the the podcast?
1: Absolutely. So all things me can be found at joshcopel.com. We're doing a weekly newsletter called the pineapple post. You can access that through my website. Um, we have the full comp podcast. We have the restaurant marketing school podcast. Um, just a ton of content. The, The goal at this point is just to offer as much value as possible during the time that we need it most. Yeah.
0: Well, um, again, man, thank you for coming on. Um, Guys go follow him. Uh, I, I highly recommend full comp. it's it's um, I think it's really great to hear from restaurateurs, owner operators perspective through all this because uh, I'm tending to focus more on the on the staff side of things. Um, but it's it's a great contrast to that. like I think they they pair very well together. Um, so yeah man, uh, guys, thank you very much again. It's been another episode of Corner members of the service industry. Uh, Josh, thank you. Um, Please, if you enjoy this content, please like, subscribe and rate and all the things I hate doing at the end of it. And I'm sure you do too. But uh, (laughs) yes, thank you. Uh, Until next time, I'll see you later. Bye.